Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 274 of Yoga Land. Hi there, Jason. Hi, Andrea. We are experimenting with new, slightly new technology today, which is we're using a new mic, and I'm very much looking forward to just comparing it to my old one because I've been not happy with my mic lately. Oh. You didn't know that, but no. it's the case. Anyway, we are going to talk about meditation today, and it's something I've been honing in on and something I'll be teaching in the 200 hour. So I thought it would be helpful to talk about things that I've learned in my own practice that have made meditation practice easier and more palatable for me. I think another way we can frame it is reasons that ourselves and others tend to talk themselves out yeah, of not having true. meditation. Exactly, practice. exactly, exactly. And just these pass off excuses. Yeah, yeah. But before we get to that, let's just do our little housekeeping, which is to say that you're headed to London soon. We're in Ohio right now having a little family vacay, and I'm going to put vacay in quotes because everybody knows that when you visit family, it's so great. And it's also, it's like own routine schedule, readjustment, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, we're doing Ohio right now. And I'm just going to say something real quick is we are sitting in the room, in the actual bedroom that I grew up in. Wait, but you slept in the other room. The the other one was Todd's until Todd was out of the house. Oh, okay. This was mine when I was a kid. Yeah. So the only thing that's different is there aren't any Motley Crue posters up anymore. And... There aren't like the weird ACDC Iron Maiden tapestries. There's really and there are not bunk beds. Okay, but I was other gonna... than that, it is the same, and that is both awesome and always a little bit weird. Oh yeah, definitely weird to be doing a podcast. It's got a little House on the Prairie vibe these days because yeah. it's got like an ancient bed from your great grandmother or something yeah, in it, I... and an old sewing machine. So I'm glad to hear it was a little different when you were here. Yeah, this was not my childhood '80s vibe. The other thing, the other reason it's good to mention where we are is that we will likely be interrupted by a seven-month-old golden retriever puppy, or a Jason Crandall's mother, or our daughter. So just just be prepared for that. It's all part of the practice. Oh, I'm heading to London. When we get back. Yeah. If you're listening in London, there's just a handful of weekend workshop spots available with me on August 13th and August 14th at Tri Yoga in London. And one of the cool things about this is I'm giving everyone that comes to a workshop added access to a nine-hour online program that I've created on Patanjali. Five hours of lecture and then four hours of practices. And then also sales and registration for our 200-hour online training is in full swing. And I am really excited about it. Yeah. Like, finally, it is so completely fleshed out, and it exists. We've done podcasts about it, that it's a real material thing. There's a lot of people that have already decided to join us, and I'm just, I'm really excited it's happening. Yeah, me too. So, just briefly, so the workshops in London are at Trioga. So, if you want to get more information about those or register for those, you go to Trioga's website, which I believe is trioga.uk. Yeah, just... Google Try Yoga UK. Yeah. yeah. And then f- to learn more about our 200-hour training, go to learn.jasonyoga.com slash 200. Or listen to the previous two podcasts where we talk through the curriculum and all of that good stuff. Yeah. 
So what do you think, Andrea, in your experience, is one of the biggest myths or biggest, most common reasons that we tend to talk ourselves out of practicing meditation or establishing a consistent meditation practice? I think there are a couple of things that are in the lead for me with that answer, but I'll just start with, I think people tell themselves that they can't do it or they're not good at it. There's a lot of, I'm just, my mind is too busy. I'll never be the kind of person that can sit still and quiet my mind. Or yeah, just this general feeling of I'm not good at it. And like, of course you're not good. I know, I know, I know. But here's the thing. How many times as a yoga teacher have you heard someone say to you, oh, I could never do yoga. I can't even touch my toes. That is so common. And you as a yoga person, like want to shake them and be like, that's exactly why you should be doing yoga. It's the the logic of I'm hungry. I can't eat. It literally doesn't make sense. And it's, I think there's a lot of things to it that you'll speak more to. But one of the things that comes up for me is just an understanding That as an adult, maybe also as kids, but as an adult, we're often afraid to do new things that we don't already have some amount of skill or acumen with. It's interesting because I don't think of myself as someone with like a huge ego. And yet when I'm confronted with doing something new where I don't already have competence in it, I sometimes don't want to do that thing because I don't want to be bad at it. It reveals like, oh, actually, there's a lot of ego in there protecting us from the unknown. Yeah, I think that also it's interesting that you say that because I think really there's this misconception that the practice of meditation, right? When you think like, I'm not going to be good at it, it's this thought that there is a fixed point that you're going to arrive at or there's a fixed personality type or a fixed mental neurotype that's going to be good at this. And the truth is that it's not, it's like, it's not about being good at anything. There's no fixed point. It's just an ongoing practice. It's just the practice of sitting quietly and observing what's happening. And and I think the other thing is that one of the things I said in my really short little Instagram reels was meditation can be a state and it can be a process. Yes. Same as yoga. Exactly. So if we're thinking of it as a fixed state, then yeah, you're, yeah, you're not going to sit down and get to that the first day, first week. But if we think of it as the process and the practice, just like we think of yoga, then it's something that we can certainly engage in. I think I had a difficult time When I started practicing yoga, I'm going to talk about competition briefly and then circle back to what you just said. I had a really difficult time doing anything that wasn't scored and obviously Mm results-based. I don't know that I did many things until I did yoga for the joy of doing the thing. And I I hope that doesn't sound like too sad or pathetic. No, I think that's really, yeah. And so... For me, and I still compete, and I still love competition, but with these practices, it just isn't that. That standard bearing that we often have with a more competitive mindset, it doesn't mean competition's wrong. It means if we are getting involved, not in competition, but in insulating ourselves from doing something that we're interested in because we're not good at it or we don't get it, that actually is a protective mechanism where we're 
where unknowingly we actually think there is a competition there. Yeah, it's true. Right? It's true. And so it's the misguidedness. It's not that competition's wrong. It's that this isn't that. Yeah. And that's a misguided. That's a misguided idea. And I remember it dawning on me in the yoga practice that A, there was no competition here. It was not scored. It was not ranked. And B, no one really cared. No one really cared if I could do forearm balance or not do forearm balance. So taking this to the practice of meditation, I think one of the things that we're getting at that we have to wrap our mind around, which is the we practice for the practice. We That we actually do the thing in and of itself. Yes, for the outcome of the thing, but also because if we're all honest with ourselves, we're all rapidly losing the ability to be awake and without overt stimulation. We're really losing the ability to just perceive what's happening within. Just mm-hmm. to be still for a few moments. Mm-hmm. I can't go to the bathroom without a phone in my hand anymore. That's that's a lost skill. Mm-hmm. So I don't just think to myself, oh my God, I'm addicted to this thing. I'm addicted to the stimulation, I think. I've actually lost the skill mm-hmm. of being just with with the moment. And so our meditation practice can be that opportunity where in some ways we're just regaining and reacquainting ourselves with this fundamental aspect of the human condition that we've had for the dawn of our since the dawn of our species but we're just maybe getting further and further away from it. Yeah. I think you make a good point and I think I would add to that and this actually addresses one of the other myths or obstacles that I think we put in the way, which is meditation is boring. And although I do agree with you that it's important, it's an important practice because we're losing the ability to simply be with ourselves. I would say that for me, there actually was an unconscious end goal with yoga and with meditation. And that is that I wanted to get better at living my life. I wanted to get better at not suffering as much. I wanted to get better. In other words, not causing myself as much suffering. I wanted to, I always think of being Italian, I always think of la dolce vita, right? Like the sweet life and how hard it is to actually live the sweet life. Even when we have, like Georg Fairstein said, when I wanted, he grew up in the black forest of Germany and then he moved to California and he realized upon moving to California, he said, this is the land of milk and honey and people are still unhappy. When you live where we live, you have absolutely everything and more that a human can need. And yet we go through our days, our conditioned thoughts come back, our habit patterns, our inner negative narrators, all of these things come back. And so for me, meditation and yoga, but for me, more overtly meditation is really a way to reset and remember like the basic goodness of life, the basic goodness of breathing and sitting and listening to what's happening around me, the birds, whatever it may be, the fan that's in the room, the cars going by, and to just, it's just to reset so that I can then move through my life with more ease. And so in a lot of ways, I think of meditation as a very active practice of how we want to live our life. We might be practicing 
a concentration meditation. So we might be continually bringing our focus back to a single point of concentration so that we can move through our day in a more focused, less scattered, more stable and equanimous way. Or on another day, we might practice cultivating compassion with a loving kindness meditation because quite frankly, we're sick of being pissed off at the world. And it's really easy in our human brains and in our human lives to be pissed off at the world (laughs) all the time. So we simply practice the opposite and we just keep practicing it. So to me, it is a very exciting and active and dynamic practice with my own personal end goal of trying to reduce suffering in my own life and therefore be able to help reduce suffering around me hopefully. This idea that, okay, I don't want to do meditation. It's like, I tried it. I don't like it. It's boring. What I will say about that is expectations are a pretty big variable when it comes to our enjoyment or our contentment with something. And I do think, I think, of course, I agree with everything that you're saying and I want to add to it. We shouldn't expect meditation to be a high sensory environment. It's a lower sensory environment. Like it's not like super, you're not going to necessarily feel like thunderbolts. Yeah. So for example, I just think when I compare my meditation practice to my dynamic movement practice. My dynamic, we'll just stick to my vinyasa practice or my asana based practice. My asana practice, my vinyasa practice, from a fundamental paying attention to what's happening as it's happening perspective, my vinyasa practice and my meditation practice are the exact same thing. I am bearing witness to what I am doing to the sensations that are present, to the thoughts that are present, and to the breath that is present. But the big thing that's different is in one, I'm moving much more overtly, and in the other one, I am I am much more still. So in the movement-based practices, there's just greater sensory feedback. You do an arm balance and everything engages. You do a back bend and everything engages. It's like an asana practice to me, the sensory experience is turned up because you are working in a more overt and physically robust way. And so there's more feedback. And I think that this is one of the reasons that yoga is, that asana practices are really popular is because we want and need that physical sensory feedback because so many of us live without enough sensation without enough movement quite frankly yeah but the other side of that coin is the meditation practice is a quieter and stiller form of the same thing where the frequency is just turned down where the sensations are much more subtle yeah they're much more quiet the feedback is lower and i think that where some people feel that is boring or some people feel that is scary I think that some people feel that is scary because in that lower sensory environment, we are confronted sometime with what's actually there, with how the heart feels, with how the mind feels, with what's bouncing around inside of our head. And that can be a little bit scary, but it can also be for people that are more akin to higher dynamic sensory experiences 
it can feel unsatisfying because it's not enough. But if that is your expectation, oh, I'm turning the lights down now. And so I'm going to practice, I'm going to practice perceiving myself in this moment in a more soft, quiet, and gentle way. There's still sensation there, but the sensation is lower. I think if our expectation is that it is not as intense or dynamic, but yet incredibly valuable because we see and learn to relate to part of ourselves that we do not in other environments, mm -hmm. then we see the value in it. I, yeah. I, I'm going to say another thing, which is I actually think meditation is one of the things that people will only do if they truly believe in the value of it. Yeah, I think that's I, for everything. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. As I'm saying that, I'm saying it yeah. with anything. But like, yeah. it's easy to buy into the value of movement practices because because we'll start to think, well, of course, I can. It's better to be. It's good to be strong, and it's good to be flexible, and it's good to facilitate circulation. But I think what people have to buy into to really drop into a meditation practice is the value of seeing yourself in a more perceptive and subtle way and learning to sit with the feeling of your body and the feeling of your heart and the feeling mm -hmm. of your mind and be with those things. It's funny, you and I, and of course we're different people, but you and I have very different experiences um, because you keep coming back to like, it's a low dynamic experience and and it's all about becoming more perceptive. And for me, the practice of meditation over time has, it's just, it's been the thing that has most deeply shifted the way I relate to the world. So it's been like very palpable, the shifts and changes I've experienced. Having said that, I think there are a lot of people who feel like you do, you know, the, oh my God, this is so boring. And to those people, I would say, and this is where, you know, when you said you have to be able to buy into the value, and I think that's like such a true statement. And I think in, at least for Buddhist meditation, because that's really what I'm most familiar with. In the countries where this those forms originated, there were monastics, there were monks, and they were part of the community, and they did their alms rounds, and you saw them every day, and you contributed to them, or you still do, and you see how they are in the world, and you see them live in countries where there are wars and still do their prayers and still remain calm and steadfast and equanimous. We don't have that here. So we don't see firsthand the effects that meditation has on people. And I think this is why people like Richard Davidson are doing studies with the functional MRI machines, because they want to show Westerners, look, it improves your memory. It actually, for certain practice, and I'm cherry-picking studies here, but I am in my mind referring to specific studies. Look, in this study, it, it shrunk the amygdala this much. In this study, it increased the gray matter in people who were in 50 plus, and their brains are remain bigger and denser than uh, people who didn't meditate in their same age cohort. So 
I do think that for people who are like, I don't know, this is really, I know I'm not really feeling it. There's a few things that that I would say. And one is look at the studies and actually I have some on the blog that I can link to because the studies motivate me as well. Look at the studies. Also find some way to meditate with other people because doing thing in, things in community instead of just rather than, especially in the beginning, rather than just sitting by yourself makes a huge difference. And I would compare this to, I would compare this to going into a Mysore Ashtanga room where you go in and it's silent practice. So you're not even getting like, you're not, at least when you go into the room and the practice has already started, you're not really even having a direct one-on-one engaged community experience, but the breath and the movement and the other people doing it around you, you are definitely having a community experience. It's the same thing when you sit with other people. And fortunately now, there are plenty of opportunities to sit with people in weekly groups online. I can link to some of those on the show notes as well. So if you live in a place where you can't find any meditation group, you can figure out how to do it online. And I haven't, I have done it. I haven't done it regularly, although I plan to, but I do think that online is better than nothing. If you're just starting out and you're really needing like that motivation and that feeling of, okay, I'm with a group, we're doing this, and now we're done. I did the technique, I did it, and now I'm done. And then just like anything else, it can take time. It can take time to figure out just the basic basics of the technique. And then it can take time to, to to land in it. And it can also take time to find the technique or the techniques that are right for you. So if you're like a very goal-oriented person, sitting in open-ended sensory awareness meditation re- might really be a bit too challenging for you at first. You really might need to do a concentration meditation. You really might need to do something where you are consistently returning, or you might need to do a mantra where you are consistently returning to something that is like very palpable. You might need to do a guided meditation. Like the other thing that I really believe is just like exercise. Whatever exercise you are going to do regularly is good exercise for you. Yeah. That I believe that. Oh, for sure. And I believe the same thing with meditation. So if doing a lead yoga nidra on glow is what is going to help you sit and be quiet with yourself. So there are a lot of different kinds of meditation that appeal to different personalities and different, just the way your mind is at any given time. Okay, so let's run this all the way back to the beginning, which is that the first myth about meditation is that meditation is like a singular thing, right? Anyone listening to this podcast knows that there are countless iterations and techniques and styles and approaches and communities of yoga, similar meditation. And so this is another reason why we can't say to ourselves like, oh, it wasn't a fit for me. Trying something a few times, like you're saying, it may not land. I can think to myself, I think about myself as a yoga teacher. I talk to this, to the people I train all the time. All you can do as a teacher of yoga is focus on doing what you do with integrity and skill. And it'll be a good fit for some people, and it won't be a good fit for all people. Same thing with meditation. There's no single approach that is going to work with all personalities, all people types, all phases of life. 
So we have to realize that there are many different approaches to this practice. And just like you would in yoga, diversify your experience with it. I think another thing to touch on that we, we talked on, but meditation is not the same thing as having a quiet mind. I've spent a lot of time meditating. I do not have a quiet mind. It's a, just like you're becoming more keenly aware of that content and its mach machinations. But it's not stopped. There's still going to be content of mind. You're still going to have thoughts. And that's not a bad thing for the mind to be an active and active human brain is a very dynamic thing. So thinking that having thoughts and being in a state of meditation or meditation are antithetical to each other is not a correct thought. That's an incorrect idea. Yeah. And what we have to make some acknowledgement around is most of the time we are unconscious of our thinking mind. When we do a meditation practice, you just become much more keenly aware of what that content is. You bear witness. You bear witness to the thoughts. You bear witness to the tone of those thoughts. You bear witness to the pace of those thoughts. And so you have to go into these practices with that in mind and being receptive to it. Yeah, absolutely. Jack Hornfield wrote that book after the ecstasy, the laundry. And to me, if I unpack the meaning of that book, it's that even if slash when you do reach very deep states of meditation, where you are kind of experiencing that thought, those thoughts ceasing and that open spacious awareness and the light coming in, you're still going to come out of your meditation and have to live your life. Yes. So it's just as important to practice mindfulness meditation, where the practice is really, like you said, not about stopping the thoughts, but it's about employing techniques when you have the thoughts. Yeah. It's about returning to being patient and calm as you return to your focal point. It's about, it's teaching yourself how to respond to your thoughts right. and to the difficulty and to the pain and to the fidgetiness and to the anxiety and to the excitement. And it's teaching yourself how to respond with more skillfulness and it's teaching yourself to be the witness to all of it right so that you can hold it all so that when you go into your life you can apply those skills elsewhere I actually remembered what i was going to say earlier which is when we were talking about finding the type that works for you i've been thinking more and more lately that for most modern householders I think guided meditation or guided yoga nidra is an absolutely appropriate, fantastic way to start because what these types of meditations do is they help calm the nervous system, just like yoga helps calm the nervous system. So they help induce the relaxation response so that we can, we then feel like that fantastic feeling of having a calm nervous system. And if that is the only thing you take away from yoga and meditation, that is huge because there are so few other instances in modern life where we're doing that or learning to do that. I think they're also a little bit more cogn cognitively active. They're almost guided meditations in a way are almost the people are going to hate this, but I'm just going to say it they're almost a little bit more like a vinyasa practice in that it is a more proactive and 
dynamic experience. Whereas, whereas more Vipassana based meditation, more open ended witness bearing process, more solitary. Yeah, it's more solitary, but it's a little bit less. If you are being guided through a guided meditation, or you said nidra, right? Yoga nidra. There's a staccato ness. There's a continuity to the guidance. There's a narrative to the guidance. You're asking your mind to follow a specific thread. When you're doing more of a Vipassana-based meditation, there's more of an open, ongoing observation of this is the content of my mind, this is the content of my uh, sensation of my body, this is the sensation of my breath. It is a little bit more passive. Does that make sense? I, you lost me. Sorry. You're saying that a guided meditation is more passive or less? No, a guided meditation is more like an active yoga practice. Okay. In that your mind is being asked to do specific things. Yeah, I gotcha. And the teacher is like maintaining a certain amount of steadiness and pace with you. Got it. Right? Yes. They're mm-hmm. kind of holding your mind's pace. Yes, yes, right? yes. That's a good point. That's a They're good point. They're holding your mind's yeah. pace. Whereas in a more of a Vipassana-based practice, right. it's a, the teacher is not necessarily holding your mind's pace nearly as much. Yeah, you could spin off into your own. Yeah. Yes, and I so gotcha. In, in that way, it can be harder for people because yeah. there's less dynamic feedback. Now... Do you think that one of the myths is that, or one of the reasons people, ways people talk themselves out of meditating is that it's too time consuming? A hundred percent. I did that for years. I just, and I will say there are teachers who will just make it sound so easy. Oh, you were watching TV for 15 minutes. Just don't watch the TV for 15 minutes. You know what? Sometimes you need to watch TV for 15 minutes. Like sometimes you do need to like scroll on your phone. That's just the reality of how we self-regulate. And we go through a, like a lot of stress in our day-to-day lives. So I don't mean to poo-poo any of those things. But I do think that you can start with five minutes a day and just either do it like first thing when you wake up or last thing before you go to sleep. And if you do that for two weeks with guided meditations, let's say, you will feel so much better. You'll just start to notice a difference and you'll start to become curious about wanting to do more. And so for me, it's like the days when I really, for whatever reason, I get interrupted or I prioritize other things. The days when I only have five minutes, that's what I do. And the days when I have 15 to 20 minutes, that's what I do. And when I have more, that's what I do. And it's really just like anything else. It's just about making it a part of your day. Like I have to do the dishes every day. I have to brush my teeth every day. I have to move my body every day. And I have to sit quietly with myself every day. I have to. Otherwise I become cuckoo. And I just react to everything instead of having that reset of, okay, I had a little time with myself. I had a little time with my breath. I can hear myself again. And I, um, you know, and I... I, Building that buffer zone. Yeah, building that buffer zone. And and like, there's really, to me, two levels. I like to think of it as two different types of benefits. There's all the benefits that the modern kind of health and wellness and, you know, fMRI machines sell us. And these are real. But there's the benefits that are like, 
you'll increase your memory, you'll increase your concentration, you will decrease the size of your amygdala, you'll increase the gray matter in the frontal lobe, yada. There's there are all those benefits. But then there's also just simply the benefit of building a relationship with yourself, just yeah. like you do in yoga. That's what I was referring to at the beginning of this conversation. Just like you in yoga learn to what happens when I'm in this really hard pose and I'm really stressed? What do I do? How, what else could I do to respond differently to myself? And then what happens when I wake up today and I want to do a really hard vinyasa practice and I have my period and I can't? What do I do? Like instead of giving it all up, what else can I do? And so it's similar to that. It's like increasing that self-awareness and then also increasing a sense of home within yourself. Like you said, it can be really scary to get quiet and be with your thoughts and be with yourself and watch your mind. And so that's why the compassion meditations exist. That's why the equanimity meditations exist. You can actually just cultivate those things and teach yourself to speak a little bit more nicely to yourself and be more gentle with yourself and create like a soft landing place within yourself so that you feel safe wherever you go. Do you think that people also feel that they need to be more strict? Like, I always feel like the image of someone that has a regular meditation practice and someone that has a regular yoga practice, I always feel like the image of that person or that location is perceived to be as very austere. Totally. Very separate. Yes. That's not my image of it yes. because I've had a much less consistent, consistent meditation practice over the years, but I've had an extremely consistent asana practice for 25 years. Yeah. And I don't have an austere practice. Like my practice, I've, I have told people this for decades. My practice is my time, not your time. And I will do it as I see fit, how I see fit, when and where I see fit. It's my time. That's actually exactly how I feel about meditation yeah. now. And it's it and I look forward to it. So if it's silent and quiet and there's no one around, great. If I want to do it while I'm listening to something, great. If I want to do it while I'm watching reruns of the office, great. It's mine. <laughs> it's my actual time. Mm. And I don't treat it as something that is separate and precious. I don't go to the museum to do my yoga practice. I mean, and I, I say this to people that struggle all the time is, this is why I've had such a long-term consistent practice because it's mine. And you can only, unless you're a very rare archetype, you can only white knuckle through something for so long. So if you don't fully befriend it and integrate it in your life, it's probably not gonna happen. So I think this, maybe this is the final myth is that it is that we feel like it needs to be before dawn with candles lit in a perfectly swept room for 60 minutes in a silent mind. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I struggle. Those things sound great. I would like those. If you have those things, don't get rid of them. Sure. No, I struggled with this forever. I struggled with, I was introduced to, I can just remember when I was first taught to do meditation, the teacher would say, I want you to be as still as possible. I don't want you to scratch an itch. I don't want you to move if you're in pain. I I don't want you to leave the room. And as a person who used to have panic attacks, as soon as she said, don't leave the room, I was like, oh, 
Like all the air was sucked out of the room. Now I look back and it was simply just a, it was just a way of teaching. And it taught me a lot. It taught me a lot to not scratch an itch. It taught me a lot to not fidget around and try to fix. She didn't say don't move if you're not in pain. She said, if you're in pain, move. But if you're just feeling uncomfortable, just you got to stay there. You got to stay there. And so I took that like in a very fundamentalist way, which is like my own guilt and my own issues of this is the only way to do it. And and it just didn't work for me. And it just continued to feed the myth that like, I'm not doing enough or good enough. And then I just kept trying different things with different teachers who had different approaches. And Yeah. And now I think it doesn't have to be done at the same time every day, in the same place, with the same technique and the same teacher. It can, for me at this point, be what I need when I need it. Having said that, I do think it's a great idea to study certain techniques with certain teachers for certain lengths of time so that you understand them and then you can see what works for you. I also think if you have too many options when you're new to something. Yeah it you just get lost and so it's really tough right because we live in this postmodern world where we need a certain amount of freedom convenience and we don't like hierarchy and we don't like too much tough love and rigidity yeah and yet we also need at least some of those things yeah so what i always think when it comes to time of day for for a practice when i'm trying to help people not so much with meditation but i think it is the same is pick two times a day and then on any given day, choose one and start with three days a week, three days a week, two times a day. And you figure out what those two times a day are. For me, those two times a day have always been late morning or evening. Those are the two times a day that I have always done some sort of practice. And it just depends on any given day. It's oh, late morning doesn't work today after dinner and before bed. That means that my practice is going to be close to the ground and it's going to be forward bends. It's going to be hip openers. So that's how it's going to be today. And maybe in my mind, I want it to be a strong practice where I'm working on inversions. That's not realistic for today. So I am going to practice the way that I can practice when I can practice today. And I think that that's a component of all these practices is Teaching ourselves to be, I hope this doesn't sound too unromantic, but teaching ourselves to be realistic, right? Be realistic, figure out three or four days a week, figure out two or three different windows of time on any given day yeah, and start with a shorter period of time and build up from there instead of starting with a longer period of time and caving. Yes, I think that's really smart. I like that. I think that's really smart. And then in terms of, and I also just want to add, because you said find windows of time. I mentioned morning and night for meditation. And also it works really well to tack it on to the beginning or end of your yoga practice or the beginning or end of an exercise routine. Just That's just throwing that out there as something that's been helpful for me. So yes. And then in terms of teachers or techniques, I think it's good to commit to something, right? Like if you're going to, like I said, if you're going to do sort of a relaxing guided meditation approach, do it for two weeks, do it for two to three weeks, and then maybe try something else and do that for two to three weeks. Like you said, three times a week, 
two possible windows of the day. And so that you're giving yourself enough time to learn it, to get through like those beginning beginner's learning curve. And it becomes a bit more natural. And then you can decide like, I'd like to learn something else. Yeah, just like anything else, your relationship to it is going to develop and change over time. And I think for most people in their yoga practice, especially, I don't want to just say early on, I would say the first couple years, the fit of the teacher is even more important than the style or whatever it is. Like, I, th- I think as humans, the when we resonate with someone's voice, someone's cadence, someone's approach, someone's personality, those things are really important to lay, to, to help you engage with the process. And then those things typically evolve over time. Absolutely. All right. I think that's enough Meditation for today. <laughs> Yeah, as I mentioned, I'll put a whole bunch of resources on the show notes page, which you can find at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 274. I think we're on episode 274. Thanks for listening. Go ahead. Super quick, which is hopefully for those of you that are listening, this is helpful, but also pass this to someone in your life that might be interested. Yes, please. Because, Because I think there's a lot of people... I sometimes we know we're already talking to the choir, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Especially if you're hearing this very end of this podcast, like you've already made it through this. Is, but see which of these things might be helpful for people in your lives who are who have asked you about meditation or who are interested in kind of the periphery, but who are still talking themselves out. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. All right. Let us know how it goes. If you enjoy the podcast, it's so helpful for us if you leave a review and especially if you follow the podcast, which you could do on your Apple iTunes app by just hitting the plus button. I think it's the same for all of the apps these days, but do follow the podcast and sign up for our newsletter at jasonyoga.com slash newsletter. And we'll talk to you soon until next week. Enjoy your practice.